So let's turn to 2 Peter chapter 1. We're starting a new book this morning, and we're looking at 2 Peter. What we're going to do is the next few weeks, we're going to go through the epistle of 2 Peter, and then after the men's conference, we're going to start the book of Revelation. Uh, if you need Bibles, uh, we got some ushers with Bibles. And what we're going to do is, during the whole election process, we're going to be going through the book of Revelation. Reason being is because we're getting close to the end. I really believe that. And I think the book of Revelation is one of the best books in the Bible to describe what's going to happen towards the end of age. And so we'll study verse by verse after the men's conference, October 9th and 10th men's conference. The weekend after that, we start the book of Revelation. And we're going to skip 1st, 2nd, 3rd John and Jude but then we'll go back to those books after we get through the book of Revelation. So we'll, we'll still study those books, but I feel it's important for us during this election season to know what the Bible says about the last days. The Bible's very, very clear what's, how it's all going to play out, and we'll study the whole book after, the, uh, after the, the men's conference. So 2 Peter chapter 1, if you're there, say amen. amen. All right, today, uh, title of my message is Evidences in our lives for being a Christian. Chuck Colson, the right-hand man to Richard Nixon that got saved through the whole Watergate process, went to jail, actually, started prison fellowship after that, wrote a book called Born Again. And in the book, he asked this question, if you were arrested for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence in your life to convict you? It's a good question, isn't it? If you were arrested right now, for being a Christian, say in a persecuted country, would they be able to see in your life enough evidence to prove your profession? And so what we're going to look at this morning in 2 Peter chapter 1 is there's a whole laundry list of evidences that are supposed to be in our lives if we're really born again, if we're really Christians. And we're going to see some of the tools this morning, too, that will help us live out these evidences in our lives as Christians. You know, that God gives us tools. He doesn't just say, hey, live out this Christian life, make sure there's evidence in there, and then you're on your own. No, he gives us some tools. We're going to see this morning some tools that will help us live out our Christian life with evidences that we are Christians. So let's jump right in. 2 Peter chapter 1. A little background on, this, on, on 2 Peter. It's uh, obviously the second letter that Peter writes to the Christians that are dispersed abroad. Remember, in 1 Peter, he was writing to these Christians that were all throughout Asia Minor, and they're out throughout Asia Minor because they were dispersed because of the persecution of Nero, the Roman emperor. And as they were dispersed, they were persecuted, and so Peter writes in 1 Peter a whole letter about how to endure suffering. And he gave a lot of principles of how to get through this as Christians as you endure per suffering because of persecution. Great stuff in 1 Peter. Now, he's making a transition in 2 Peter. This is more like the mid-60s. The first letter was written in the early 60s AD. This is the mid-60s. And he's writing because he's in Rome. And in Rome, he's heard uh, uh, that there's these Christians scattered abroad in Asia Minor were not only suffering because of persecution, they were enduring also false teachers. And these false teachers were coming into the church, and they were trying to pollute the message of the gospel of grace. And, and what we're going to see throughout these three chapters of 2 Peter is 11 times Peter's going to uh, talk about knowledge, the importance of knowledge. The word knowledge in the Greek there, epigenosos. It's knowledge through experience and intimacy. It's a knowledge that we gain through an experiential, intimate relationship with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so this, this, this letter, 11 different times, is going to talk about the importance for us to have an intimate, experiential knowledge of God that keeps us away from the false teaching that blows through the church, and it's still blowing through the church, have you noticed? 
There's a lot of false teaching out there, and it's important that we have epigenosis, that we have intimate experiential knowledge of God that keeps us away from the false teaching that's out there. So that's the background to the letter. So let's jump right in. Verse 1, it says, Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who received a faith of the same kind as ours, by the righteousness of our God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Obviously, the writer of the letter is Simon Peter. Simon is his birth name. Peter is the name that was given to him by Jesus. Remember, Jesus was with Peter, and he asked, who do you say that I am? Peter says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, well, I'm going to name you Peter now, because upon this rock, the word Peter is Petros rock, upon this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And what Jesus was saying is, upon your confession, Peter, of me as the Christ, the son of the living God, the church of Jesus Christ will be built. And that's why his name is not only Simon, but it's Peter. And notice what he calls himself. He's a bondservant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Bondservant. Now that goes back to his Hebrew heritage. And according to Exodus 21, bondservants were those that were slaves, but after six years of service, it was according to the law, after six years, you had to be released as a slave. You could only be indentured for six years in the Hebrew culture. But if you loved your master, if you loved his family, if he had a good gig there working in your family's household, you could say, according to Exodus 21, you could say, hey, I, I don't got anywhere better to go. I want to serve my master. I love my master. I love his family. I love serving him and living in his household. And then he would take, that master would take you to the doorpost and he would put your earlobe on the doorpost and he'd give you a pierced ear. Allah, pierced ears. That's probably where they came from, from the Hebrew culture. And if you got a pierced ear as a slave, it meant you were a bondservant. You were, that pierced ear signified that you loved your master so much you were going to stay with him even though he didn't have to and you were going to serve him even though he didn't have to. You see the picture of who we're supposed to be as Christians? Let's, uh, all, guys, all next week, we're all going to get pierced ears because we're bond slaves. Why do we serve Jesus? Because we have to? Because we're in a slave to him? Because we don't have any choice? No, we all have a choice, and our choice is we're going to serve Jesus Christ because of what he did on the cross in serving us. Because of the way he died for my sins, I want to serve him all my life, and I do. I hated this virus where I got locked down for 10 days because I couldn't go to my office, I couldn't work with my staff, I couldn't teach you all, I couldn't serve the way I'm supposed to serve, and it just about drove me nuts because I want to serve Jesus. And I want a whole bunch of people in our church that have pierced ears because we want to all serve Jesus. Not because we have to, but because we love him, amen? We want to serve Jesus because we love him. Because he loved us and died on that cross for our sins. But it also says that Peter was an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now the word apostle, interesting word. One who's sent forth to represent someone else. Now in the New Testament culture, the apostles had a special office, a special place. According to Ephesians chapter 4 verse 11, the apostles were were in this position of, 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 of major foundation leadership for the New Testament church. So much so that they wrote most of the New Testament, the apostles did. So much so that Acts 2.42 says about the apostles that they continually devoted themselves to what? The apostles' teaching. 
That was the authoritative role the apostles had. They wrote most of the New Testament, and also they were the teachers that built the foundation for Christianity as we know it. So we're not apostles like Peter, but the word means one who is sent forth to represent another, and that's what we're supposed to be doing too. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says we are ambassadors for Christ, and we're pleading with other people. We're making an appeal to them to be reconciled to God. And every single one of us is an apostle in the sense that we are going and we're representing another, and that's King Jesus, to a world that needs King Jesus. So he's an apostle of Christ Jesus, special position. They're also eyewitnesses of the resurrected Lord. But in a sense, we have that position, too, of going forth and representing a king, and that king is Jesus. And then it says he's not only a bondservant and apostle of Christ Jesus, but he's writing to those who received a faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness. Notice what it says about who Jesus is. Of our God and Savior, our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, in the Greek, that's a definite article, which means both titles are given to the one person, and that's Jesus. So what does that verse tell us about Jesus? He's not only our Savior, but what? He's God. Hello? Every false teaching group out there, every single person with the white shirts and the black ties and the bicycles that come to your door will deny this statement that Jesus is God. It's one of the chief characteristics of cults and false teaching groups. They deny the deity of Jesus Christ. And if they're honest with you, if you ask them when they come to your door, do you believe that Jesus is God? You know what they'll tell you? They'll say, Jesus never claimed to be God. The Bible never says that Jesus is God. That's, their, that's what they say. Hello, right here, Jesus is our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word, Jesus Christ, was God. And the Word became flesh, and he dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Don't ever believe the teachers out there that are false teachers that are denying the deity of Jesus Christ. And that's important, because it's even infiltrating the church. There's a church that has some great worship, Great worship songs, and their pastor is, is belittling the deity of Christ here on earth in the sense that he's saying that when Jesus came to earth, he gave up all his divine attributes, and he was just as powerful as we are, and that's it. No way. When Jesus was here on earth, he walked on water. I've tried it. Not very easy. When Jesus was here on earth, he raised the dead. When Jesus was here on earth, he said to Nathaniel, hey, I saw you underneath the tree even though I wasn't there because I'm omniscient and omnipresent. Jesus was God in the flesh. He was fully human, yes, but he's fully God. Don't let anybody ever tell you otherwise. The Bible says he's our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And then it says grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of our God and of Jesus our Lord. Now that's typical Pauline greeting. Paul starts all his epistles saying grace and peace. But notice what Peter adds to grace and peace. Grace and peace be what? multiplied. Actually, the word is plethanon in the Greek. It's a word from which we get plethora. And what he's saying there is, may there be a plethora of grace and peace. May grace and peace be amplified in your life. And what does he say the source of grace and peace is there, according to that verse? The knowledge of our God and of Jesus, our Lord. You want grace and peace? You want more grace in your life? You want more peace in your life? 
It comes from the knowledge, again, the word knowledge, the intimate and experiential knowledge of Jesus Christ. The more you grow in your relationship with Jesus, the more you're going to have grace and peace. And I don't know about you, but I want both of those. I need both of those, especially in the world we're living in. I, I need God's grace and I need God's peace. And my only source for it is the knowledge of my Savior, Jesus Christ. And as I grow in that knowledge of Jesus, multiplied in my life is grace and peace. I love that. There's no other source for grace and peace than Jesus. But Jesus said, hey, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, and you'll find rest. Rest for your souls, for I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Multiplied grace and peace through our knowledge of Jesus Christ. Now, first tool for having these evidences of Christianity, like verse 3, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge, epignosis again, of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. Now, if you're ever going to underline a verse in the Bible, that one should be underlined. Every Christian should have that verse underlined because it says that God has given us divine power. He's granted it to us for living a life of godliness and a life that we're supposed to live as Christians. He's given us power. I've got the power. Oh, that's a song that's different. But power, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be my witnesses. Jesus made it very clear, John 14, I ask the Father, and he'll give you another helper, that he may be with you forever, the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it doesn't see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you. He'll be in you. That's the Holy Spirit, the helper. You got the power. And you got all you need to live the Christian life by the power of the Holy Spirit. Oh, I can't do this Christianity thing. It's just too hard. I, just too many battles. That sin is just too besetting me. I can't do this. Chris, be quiet. You can. Because this verse says you got the power. God has given to you the divine power that's necessary to live a life of godliness. And you got to tap into it. And how do you tap into the power? Jesus made it very clear, John 15, 5. I am the vine, you are the branches. If any man abides in me, I will abide in him, and he'll produce much fruit. But apart from me, you could do nothing. And what that verse is saying, Jesus is saying, is, is this. You want more power, you need to tap into that power by abiding in Jesus. Having that daily time with Jesus where you're abiding in him, so he can abide in you by the Holy Spirit and give you the power you need. Listen, private prayer leads to public power. And you want more public power? You want more victory over the battles that you face? If you want more godliness in your life, it ain't going to come through New Year's resolutions. It's going to come through private prayer. Spending time in the prayer closet, seeking Jesus and beholding his face so he can change you from glory to glory in his image. It's wonderful. It's not about you trying to force it in your life. It's about you just being with Jesus. So my question this Sunday morning, question to myself, how's your prayer life? Are you prioritizing it? Is it more important than football? Is it more important than any other hobbies or things you're doing? Are you spending time in his word and prayer on a daily basis so you can have the private prayer leading to the public power? There's a source right there. 
And if you need to, man, set that alarm 15 minutes, 20 minutes earlier. Spend some more time before you start your day in private prayer so it can lead to public power. Amen? Charles Spurgeon, probably one of the greatest preachers that ever preached, said that he would go up to his pulpit every Sunday, and he'd have thousands he'd be preaching to. And as he was walking up to the pulpit, he'd say, Holy Spirit, I need your power. Holy Spirit, fill me afresh. Holy Spirit, I need, I need, I need your power. Power, fill me. And then he'd get up to that pulpit, and he'd have one little note card with five or six bullet points, that's it, and he'd preach for an hour some of the greatest sermons that have ever been preached because there was private prayer that led to public power. Amen? God has given you all you need for a life of godliness in his divine power, but we need to tap into it through spending time with Jesus. And then it goes on, and it says this, after divine power granting us everything we need for life and godliness, second tool, verse 4, for by these things he's granted to us his precious and magnificent promises in order that they, by them you may become partakers. Notice this interesting phrase. We're partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. And first of all, notice who we are as Christians. We're not of this world. We're citizens of heaven <laughs> to the point that we are partakers of the divine nature. Now careful with that. Don't go new age on me. New age says we're all gods. We're not all gods. We're sinners saved by God's grace. Amen? Amen. But partakers of divine nature, you know what that means? That means that we have a new nature. If any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. And when you're given the Holy Spirit after you receive Christ by faith, you're given a new nature. You go from being a pig to being a lamb. You know what a pig does when he sees mud and dirt? He, he, you could dress up a pig in 4-H. You could put a bow around his neck. You could make him clean as can be. But when a pig gets around a mud puddle, you know what a pig's going to do? He's going to jump right in there with the ribbon and everything and get all dirty. But what does a sheep do? A sheep, when you could dress them up and clean them up and stuff. A sheep, I've been told this. I'm a city boy, so I don't know for sure, but I've been told that when a, when a sheep especially when he's cleaned up, goes by a mud puddle, what it does is it looks at the mud puddle and then walks around the mud puddle and doesn't dive in. We are sheep now. <laughs> we're a bunch of sheep. We have a divine nature. And that is, yes, we're, gonna, we're still going to get dirty at times. We're still going to sin. We're still going to make mistakes. We're still going to do dumb things because we're just sinners saved by God's grace. But we have this new nature. And the nature is that we're we're sons and daughters of God, and the Holy Spirit's sanctifying us, and the Holy Spirit's putting in our hearts to stop jumping in the mud pedals of this world. We're not going to live in the ignorance of the lust of the flesh anymore. We're not going to live by the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the boastful pride of life. We're going to live for Christ. We're going to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness so he can add all things unto us. We have a divine nature. But listen, the second tool for living in this divine nature, we're told right here, Look at it again. It's the precious and magnificent promises of God. Now, if you look at First and Second Peter, over and over again, Peter uses the word precious. I can just see this. History tells us, church history says that Peter was this strapping, tall, you know, macho fisherman. And he gets saved by Jesus, and all of a sudden he's saying, this is precious. Precious. God's promises are precious. And notice they're not only precious, they're magnificent. 
That's the second tool we have for living for Christ. Not only his power, but his promises. And if you want to live for Christ, you've got to get your nose in the book. And you've got to start reading and studying and memorizing and learning and, and putting to practice the promises of God. I, I tell you what, I do that every day. Every day, there's scripture that I have memorized on different promises. I was reading the commentary this week. There's 30,000 promises in Genesis to Revelation in the 66 books of the Bible. 30,000 of them. And there's certain promises in my life that, man, every day I'm tapping into and holding on to because I need as a, as a child of God. I, Philippians 4.13, I quote it just about every day, a promise of God. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Philippians 4.19, my God shall supply all my needs according to the riches of Christ Jesus. Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. Later on in Romans chapter 8, it says, if God be for me, who could be against me? And there is, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I'm a, I'm a conqueror through Christ. And there's nothing, at the end of the book of Romans chapter 8, in the end of the chapter it says, there's nothing that can separate me from the love of Christ. Those are scriptures, man, promises I hang on to all the time. They help me live this Christian life. Scriptures like Jeremiah 29, 11, I know the plans I have for you, plans not for calamity, but for welfare, to give you a future and a hope. Those are promises. And we need to get in the book. We need to memorize those promises and stand on those promises. And I've told you before, one of my heroes is Corey Tenboom, amazing woman of God. She was a friend at Calvary Chapel, too, by the way. Pastor Chuck, the founder of Calvary Chapel, actually officiated her funeral in Southern California when she did die when she was 90-some years old. Amazing woman of God. And what Corey Tenboom's family did, strong Christian family, I like her, too, because she's Dutch. You know, and I'm, I'm 100% Dutch, and if you're not Dutch, you're not much, right? I'm no, just kidding. Just kidding. But she was, she was from Holland, and her parents actually used their attic during World War II to be a hiding place for, for Jews that were being um, thrown into concentration camps. And, and they did it for dozens and dozens of Jewish people. Their lives were saved because that was their place as they sought to get out of Nazi-occupied areas. They, that was their hiding place. Well, they eventually got arrested. And her dad, her sister Betsy, and her ended up in a concentration camp. Terrible, terrible concentration camp. And um, all kinds of atrocious things going on. You know, guards raping people, ladies right in front of other ladies. There was just terrible, flea-infested, uh, you know, living, people dying and being gas-chambered to death all in front of their eyes. And you know what Corey Tenboom and her sister Betsy and her dad did? They took scriptures... And they wrote them down on little pieces of paper, and they put them in their shoes. And they had the promises of God in their shoes. And whenever they'd see each other in the concentration camp, whenever, whenever Corey would see Betsy, Betsy, what's in your shoes? And Betsy, when Corey was down, would say, Corey, what's in your shoes? And then Dad would say to them when they see him, hey, what's in your shoes? What are you standing on? And they would immediately, the promises of God. We're going to make it through this thing because we have the promises of God. And we're standing on the promises of God. Christians, you want to live the Christian life? Stand on the promises of God. 
Get to know these promises in this book and trust them and believe in them and live by them. The magnificent and precious promises of God will help you live out the Christian life. Amen? All right, so let's look at our laundry list now. What are these evidences now as we live in the power of God, as we live in the promises of God? What are these evidences that are supposed to be in our life of the Christian life? Let's look at our list, verse 5. <clears throat> now, for this reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence in your moral excellence, knowledge, in your knowledge, what? Self-control, <coughs> in your self-control, perseverance, in your perseverance, godliness, in your godliness, brotherly kindness, in your brotherly kindness, what? Love. So let's look at each one of those things. This, this is supposed to be evidences of our Christianity. First thing is, if you want to be a Christian that's evidencing these things in your life, you've got you to apply all diligence. What does that mean? It means it takes some work. It means that it's not just, hey, let go, let God. God will just change you without anything on your part. No, that's not true. Paul said to Timothy, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. That means you gotta, you got you to apply yourself with some spiritual disciplines. Spiritual disciplines like prayer. Spiritual disciplines like we've already talked about, being in the presence of Jesus. Spiritual disciplines like being in God's word. Spiritual disciplines like being in church. Spiritual disciplines like fellowshipping, having a close relationship with other Christians that can hold you accountable. Those all have to be in place. <clears throat> it's applying diligence. Take some work. We're told in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, So then, my beloved brethren, just as you've always obeyed, not as my presence only, but not much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. You see the two sides to our sanctification? God's at work in us by the power of the Holy Spirit. We have a helper. The Holy Spirit's helping us live this Christian life. But we need to work out what God's working in. Amen? We need to be people that are applying diligence in our walk with God and practicing spiritual disciplines. And praise God for every one of you that are here, even though we have this panic about this virus, you're disciplined enough this Sunday morning to get up and get yourself in church and study the Word of God so you can live out these Christian evidences we're talking about. That's a part of the dil diligence, isn't it? God's working in us, but we got to work out what he's working in. Now, it doesn't say work for your salvation. You're saved by grace through faith. But it says work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And then the next thing on the list after diligence is moral excellence. <clears throat> Some of your translations translates this uh, virtue. And it means this. It's the nobility of living in morality. It's having uh, morals that are being changed by the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. It's, 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 it's being those people that aren't conformed to this world, but transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove the will of God, that which is good and acceptable and perfect for your life. Morality, it's important. Moral excellence. When I first got saved, one of the things that led me to Christ was not only these Christians that were witnessing to me, but these Christians that were witnessing to me had moral excellence. They talked different than all the rest of us in that high school. They didn't swear and use profanity like the rest of us did. They, they, they had a different lifestyle on the weekends than we did. We were all getting drunk and high on the weekends, and these Christians were in church or Bible studies. It's amazing. There's moral excellence there. They had a purity, even in their relationships, 
between boyfriends and girlfriends that I saw as a pagan non-believer, and I saw these, not, these Christians that said, they are different. There's a moral excellence in their lives, and it led me to Christ, because they were the real deal. Calvary Chapel Christians, let's be the real deal. Let's, let's strive for seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness. Let's, let's be people that are, yeah, we can't be perfect. We're going to stumble. We're going to make mistakes. But let's, let's, let's be people that are pursuing holiness, that are seeking first his kingdom and righteousness. Amen? That's a part of living out the Christian life. We're going to be the real deal. We're seeking morality and purity and holiness. And then after moral excellence, let's, let's go on. It says this, and in your moral excellence, knowledge. See the word knowledge again? Intimate and experiential knowledge of God. And one of the reasons why we do so many Bible studies here at Calvary Chapel is because we want you to be growing in your knowledge too. We want you to be growing in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And that's my job, by the way. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 to 13, specifies the pastor-teacher is for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the truth, the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure and the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. My job is to teach you God's word, to equip you in righteousness, but also that you might grow in the knowledge of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And that's why we do so many Bible studies around here is because we want you to grow. We want you to be green Christians. And I don't mean by green Christians tree huggers. I mean green Christians that what do green plants do? They grow, man. And as you study, according to Psalm 1, as you study God's word, you're going to be like a tree planted by a stream of water. And your leaf isn't going to wither. And whatever you do is going to prosper because you're meditating on God's word day and night, right? It's part of the Christian life, knowledge. We should be growing in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Now let's go on with our list. After knowledge, it says self-control. We all love that one, huh? What is self-control? Self-control, very easy, is, is this. It's self-discipline. It's learning to have restraint and discipline and your passions and your desires. And it's, you can't do it in the flesh because our flesh is sinful. It's bent towards lack of self-control. Our flesh is bent towards self-destruction. But one of the wonderful things about the Holy Spirit working in our lives is the last fruit of the Spirit of the Holy Spirit working in our lives is self-control. And as you walk in the Spirit, you will not fulfill the lusts of your flesh. And as you have a life that's surrendered and filled with the work of the Holy Spirit, one of the things the Holy Spirit starts doing is he starts giving you self-control. And you start having this mastery over the flesh rather than allowing the flesh to master you. That's what self-control is. Self-control is learning to be under the direction and the power of the Holy Spirit to the point where you say yes to the Spirit and no to the flesh. Where you take up your cross daily, you deny yourself, <clears throat> and you follow Jesus. That's self-control. It's a wonderful fruit. And as the Holy Spirit does that in our lives, what happens is you start getting victory, man. You start running the race in such a way that you're winning. You start becoming a victor instead of a victim. And that's what God wants for every single Christian. Paul said, I run this race in such a way to win. If you know Pastor John at all, you know I like to win. You know, like anything I'm playing, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to go for it to win, man. I play Heidi in cards, and every time she beats me, I, I yeah! A backgammon. We play backgammon. I'm, I'm, I'm all out. I like to win. 
I'm playing golf with you all. I'm going I'm to do everything short of cheating to win. No, I, I'm, I'm serious. I try to, try to stick to the rules, but I'm going to do everything I can. Hit it out of the woods, anything I can. I'm going to do it to try, to try to win. But one of the greatest ways I like winning is against the devil. I love it when God starts giving me victory over my passions and my desires. And I win. And I start seeing that, man, as I'm walking with Christ, he's giving me victory. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory in our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And as we walk in the Spirit, he gives us not only moral excellence, he gives us self-control by the power of the Holy Spirit. And then going on, it says perseverance, another part of our evidence of Christianity. Hey, one of the, one of the, one of the ways you can know you're living the Christian life is you're not giving up. You're persevering. You're being like Paul that says, I've fought the good fight. I've finished the course. I've kept the faith. And, and yeah, you're going to have some stumbles. Pastor John has stumbles all the time. I'm still a knucklehead and I still do dumb things. But I'm going to confess my sin so he can be faithful and just. He can forgive my sin. And he can purify me from all unrighteousness. And I'm going to get up back on my feet because a righteous man falls seven times, but he rises again. And I tell you what, perseverance is an important attribute of living the Christian life because the devil's chief goal, his chief goal in your Christianity is to get you to quit. He wants you to quit, man. He wants you just to give up and give in. It's one of, one of my life verses, 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Uh, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, be immovable, be always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil in the Lord is not in vain. Don't quit. One of the most frustrating things about being in the ministry is seeing people get out of the gate fast, be on fire for Christ, and then the next thing you know, they're back in the world. And they're going back to the vomit and the garbage of the world. And you say, what happened? What happened is they didn't have perseverance. They might have had some trials. They might have had some difficulties. They might have had some things that they didn't expect to happen as a Christian. Hey, Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble, but take heart, because I've overcome the world. Don't quit. Keep fighting the good fight. Finish the course. Keep the faith. That's a part of living out this Christian life, perseverance. Amen? Don't quit. Keep fighting. And if the devil wants a war or a battle, let's give him a war. Don't lay down to him, man. Keep fighting. Fight the good fight. Finish the course. Keep the faith. Perseverance. And then the next attribute of the Christian life is godliness. What does that mean? Being like God. Ephesians 5.1 says we're supposed to be imitators of God. We're supposed to be people that are imitating the God we're getting to know. And again, what's the source for doing that? It's not your, uh, it's not your abilities or your self-will. It's not your, your, your saying, I'm going to be more like God. No, it's being in his presence. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says very simply, it says, as we behold his face, he changes us from glory to glory into his image. Amen? And as you behold his face, and as you have time with him, he makes you more and more and more like him. Have you noticed that? If you hang out with somebody for a long enough period of time, do you notice you start becoming like that person that you're hanging out with? I've seen that in older couples. <laughs> I've seen that in older couples that as they age and grow old together, they talk like each other. They have the same kind of mannerisms, and this is a really scary thing for Heidi. They even start looking like each other. <laughs> have you noticed that? 
As, as, you, as you grow in that relationship with the person, you become like that person. And that's what God wants for us, is us to grow in this relationship with him so we start looking like him. And we start acting like him. We start, see, people see God in us, in godliness. And then the last thing on the list after godliness, it says this, in your godliness, brotherly kindness. And in your brotherly kindness, there it is, love. Love! The greatest evidence that you're a Christian is your brotherly kindness and love for other people. Jesus said, they will know you are my disciples by your love for one another. And listen, brotherly kindness and love are linked. Brotherly kindness is deeds that evidence themselves in action. That's brotherly kindness. Brotherly kindness is when you're doing something kind towards somebody else. And an evidence of your love is your brotherly kindness and your deeds of kindness. Uh, 1 John, the Apostle John put it this way. Little children, let us not love with word or tongue, but what? In deed and truth. And I love John also saying this, 1 John 4, 7, 8. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. When I was a young Christian, brand new Christian, the Maranatha songs were all just starting to come out. It was in the 70s. And one of the first Maranatha songs I learned was these verses. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knoweth God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. 1 John 4, 7, and 8. Woo! Pastor John singing, I'm sorry. Sorry I put you through that. But that's a great song. It was right from Scripture. That's one of the things I loved about the Maranatha songs is many of them written right from Scripture. And I remember singing that song about loving others and God being a God of love as a brand new Christian. I remember that just resonated in my heart. I remember saying, yeah, that's what this whole thing's all about. It's all about getting to know the God of love and then loving people. Loving him Loving people, the greatest evidence of our Christianity. It's, you could be all the knowledge and all the faith and all the gifts in the world, 1 Corinthians 13 says. But without love, you're nothing. Love, it's the greatest evidence we're the real deal. So let's close up our, our scripture for this morning, 2 Peter chapter 1. It says, for if these qualities, verse 8, are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But, but vice versa, you are useful and you're fruitful if you're living in these evidences. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. In other words, if you're not living with these evidences in your life, you're being short-sighted, you're being blind. And then it says, therefore, brethren, by all the, be all the more, here it is again, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you, for as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be abundantly supplied to you. What he's saying in the closing there is, we got an entrance one day. It's an entrance into heaven. And when we have that entrance into heaven, let's be people 
that are living what we say we believe so that when we have this entrance into heaven and we see Jesus face to face, which we will, we could hear those words. Well done, good and faithful servants. Enter now into the joy of your master. Now, will these evidences save us? No, it's only the cross that saves us. Will these evidences be the, the thing that gets us into heaven? No, it's only the grace of God that gets us into heaven. The moment you put a saving faith in Jesus Christ, you're saved by faith through trust in Christ. But an important part of our Christianity is being diligent to be living these things out. And not only being diligent, but being people that are tapping into the power of the knowledge of God through Jesus Christ. So that power could be poured into your life to live these things out. And not only that, to be people that also are using the tool of this, the promises of God that are magnificent and are precious and will help you live out what this says we're supposed to be as Christians.